This hearing is called to order. Uh, we thank uh, the nominees for being here. And uh, before we turn to opening statements, I want to take just a moment to introduce these nominees, the witnesses who will be asked to fill really important roles at the State Department. Uh, first, Stephen Goldstein, the President's nominee to be Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. Um, Stephen comes to us from the private sector where he served as Senior Vice President of BP Global Solutions. He's been there since 2012, in addition to developing marketing, communications, data science, and social media initiatives at a number of large companies, uh, including Alliance Birdstein, uh, Dow Jones & Company. Uh, Mr. Goldstein also served at the Department of Interior and was a staffer in the House of Representatives. Uh, Sean Lawler is the President's nominee to serve as Chief of Protocol. Mr. Lawler currently serves as Director for Visits, Planning, and Diplomatic Affairs at the National Security Council, and prior to that had a distinguished career at the Department of Defense, including a tour as Head of the Office of Visits and Protocol uh, at U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, Lisa Johnson is a Career Foreign Service Officer and the President's nominee to serve as Ambassador to the People's Republic of Namibia, currently uh, Charge at the U.S. Embassy in Nassau, Bahamas, Ms. Johnson has served at U.S. diplomatic posts around the world, including two in Africa, as well as in important national security positions in Washington, including uh, the National Security Council. Uh, Rebecca Gonzalez, also a career foreign service officer, has been nominated to serve as ambassador to the Kingdom of Lesotho. She, too, uh, is a career uh, foreign service officer with a distinguished background, currently chief of staff at the Bureau of Administration at the State Department and has also held a number of other senior roles that have developed her expertise on African issues. Uh, last but not least is James Randolph Evans, and I'm going to ask my colleague from Georgia, who is always uh, articulate and uh, much better at this than on. I am. Obviously what I'm, an entrance that is. Yeah. He's, he's, he's getting a phone call from uh, the Secretary of State telling him what he should say in this introduction, apparently. But, um, Senator Isaacson, the introduction is yours. Well, Chairman Portman, Ranking Member Coons, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. You know, I was asked one time when I was introduced as a senior senator from Georgia, what exactly does a senior senator do? I said, well, when somebody important from your state comes to town and they're nominated for a position, you get to introduce them. So that's what a senior senator does. So I have a real privilege today to introduce a Georgian who's a longtime friend of mine, a distinguished attorney from my state, a man who married way over his head in more ways than one, and it's somebody I'm proud today to recommend as President Trump's nominee to be Ambassador to Luxembourg. Randy Evans is a senior partner in the firm of Denton's in their financial services and institutions practice. Denton's is the largest law firm in the world. There's no better qualification that you could ask for for somebody to go to a place like Luxembourg, which is the second largest domicile next to the United States of America for financial instruments and institutions. So it's an important country for our country in a lot of ways. And Randy is exactly the type of person you want to have in that country representing the United States of America. Now, he has many assets. I could tell you where he graduated from college. I could tell you all kinds of things about it. I'll tell you three things. One, his wife, Linda, is a beautiful, talented person who is a dear friend of mine and has been for years. One of the true joys I have in public service is going to events that I have to go to because I get to go to and be around Randy or around Linda. They're a great couple. Secondly, he has been a big help to me personally. In fact, he played the Democratic nominee for Governor Zell Miller when I ran for Governor of Georgia in 1990, and Zell Miller beat me. But he played Zell 
in the mock debates that we did. I was a real estate salesman, not a, not a lawyer, so I wasn't used to taking the argumentative approach to debate. I was used to trying to always sell. But Randy told me the tough, taught me the tougher edge as well and made me a better man in that campaign and probably was ultimately responsible for me winning a few debates later on after I got my hat handed to me during that one. But I learned a lot from Randy, and he taught me an awful lot. But he's also a Georgia Bulldog. And I just have to say, Senator Booker, that on the day after the Georgia Bulldogs were not named number one country football team in the country, it's important to be introducing a graduate from the University of Georgia, Randy Evans. <laughs> so for many reasons, our football team, his talent, his gift to Georgia, his wonderful wife, and the service he gives to our state and our country, I'm proud to introduce President Trump's nominee for the ambassadorship to Luxembourg, Randy Evans, distinguished attorney from the state of Georgia. Randy, welcome. I thank my colleague from Georgia, as I predicted, uh, and articulate and very personal introduction. So uh, again, welcome uh, to you, Mr. Evans. Uh, I'd like to turn to my colleague, Senator Coons, for any opening remarks, after which we're going to hear briefly from our witnesses and have a chance to get into a dialogue. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you um, to my uh, dear good friend, Senator Isaacson, as well, my uh, colleague, uh, Senator Booker. Thank you to all of you um, and to your families uh, for your willingness to step forward and serve our nation. Um, some of you have been doing so for a career. Some of you uh, have been doing it in other ways in your home states or communities. Um, I was first uh, the chair of the Africa subcommittee um, when I came uh, seven years ago, and so I'm particularly interested in uh, those who will serve, uh, who may have the opportunity to serve in Namibia and in Lesotho. Uh, but all of you are stepping forward, whether in Europe or in a protocol position uh, or in uh, public diplomacy. Uh, and I just wanted to open by saying uh, our diplomats around the world um, face challenging environments, uh, face opportunities uh, to move our values forward. Uh, and I'm grateful uh, for the chance to join uh, Senator Portman here today in hearing your testimony, in greeting and welcoming your families, and in thanking you for your willingness to serve. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, and to our witnesses, you've all submitted written copies of your statements. Uh, those will be included in the record. So I ask you to try to keep your remarks uh, to a couple of minutes. And then again, we'll have a chance to have um, a little dialogue back and forth about some of the issues and some of the uh, roles that you will be uh, playing if you are confirmed. Uh, I would like to start uh, with Mr. Goldstein, uh, then Mr. Lawler, then Ms. Johnson, then Ms. Gonzalez, then Mr. Evans. I'm told that is the appropriate protocol, so Lawler will appreciate that. Um, so with that, Mr. Goldstein. <clears throat> Chairman Portman. Ranking Member Coons, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me here today. I am deeply grateful to President Trump and to Secretary Tillerson for placing their confidence in me. I've spent the bulk of my career helping senior leaders in government and the private sector tell their stories. Now to have the opportunity to help America tell its story to the world is the honor of a lifetime. I'm proud to say my spouse, Bill Popoleski, is here with me today, and I could not do this without his love and support. Every day we see stories of Americans who endeavor to make the world a better place. Countless individuals across the globe benefit from our generosity and compassion. Yet those who seek to undermine America do so by spreading misinformation about our people and our objectives. To tell the real story of America, we must speak with one voice to people where they listen. We must ensure that the State Department is harnessing the power of new technologies as they develop. We must also do everything we can to combat the radical ideologies that threaten Americans at home and abroad. I feel this deeply because I've seen firsthand the heartbreak that occurs when a malign force takes root and diplomacy fails to stop it. 
In January 2002, when I led communications for Dow Jones, Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl was kidnapped in Pakistan. For weeks, we worked round the clock to bring Danny home. It fell to me to tell his parents how their son died. Danny's death was a stark example of the personal tragedy that lies in the wake of every terrorist act. The department's Global Engagement Center is working to win the war of ideas that underpin terrorism. That must include addressing the ecosystem of thought that justifies killing civilians for political ends, as well as engaging the technology companies to identify and intervene against those who are likely to commit violence. If confirmed, I look forward to working with my colleagues around the world to enhance America's reputation and advance America's interest. Bringing diverse ideas and people together in common purpose has been a hallmark of America for nearly 230 years, and our example can inspire hope in others. Thank you again for inviting me to speak with you today. Thank you, Mr. Goldstein. Mr. Lawler. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. I'm humbled beyond words to appear before this distinguished body as President Trump's nominee for Chief of Protocol of the United States. I have deep gratitude to the President, the First Lady, Secretary Tillerson, for their trust and confidence in nominating me for this position. Knowing any accomplishments I have or share, I'd like to acknowledge my wife, Grace, who is with me here today, and my son, Connor, who is not available to be here. He's off at school. But I owe everything to both of them for their support and inspiration. I was born and raised in the south southwest side of Chicago. Uh, and shortly into my first enlistment, I lost both of my parents. The Navy qu quickly became my family. And throughout my 21 years of service, I married, started my own family, and worked as hard as I could to succeed. My military service resulted in many life lessons, but none more than service before self. Throughout my career, I was fortunate enough to work under phenomenal leaders and mentors who taught me, corrected me, and groomed me for continued growth. Following retirement, I spent several years as the Chief of Protocol at U.S. Cyber Command before assuming my current position on the National Security Council, working closely with my State Department colleagues in coordinating the foreign engagements for the President. The Chief of Protocol advises, assists, and supports the President, the Vice President, Secretary of State on official matters of national and international protocol, as well as serving as the President's representative to visiting foreign leaders and bilateral chiefs of mission in the United States. If confirmed, I look forward to contributing in a unique and meaningful way to advancing the principles of diplomacy, enhancing our relations with the diplomatic community by working with a team of exceptional professionals at the State Department and White House, whom I've had the pleasure of getting to work with since January. I've witnessed firsthand the selfless dedication and patriotism that is uncommon outside military service. The Office of the Chief of Protocol is an integral and successful diplomacy and furthering the foreign policy goals of the administration. I believe my experience for nearly three decades in government uh, makes me a well-qualified candidate for this position. And if confirmed, I look forward to serving our great nation alongside the outstanding professionals at the White House and the Department of State to continue to build on the framework and foundation for fostering diplomacy. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear for your consideration. Thank you, Mr. Lawler. Ms. Johnson. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Coons, and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you as President Trump's nominee to be Ambassador to the Republic of Namibia. I would like to express my gratitude to the President and Secretary Tillerson for the confidence they have placed in me. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the committee and with the Congress to advance our nation's interests in Namibia. Please permit me to acknowledge my parents who are watching online from Florida today and my brother Mike. They have supported me proudly as I have represented the United States overseas during the past 25 years. Some close friends are present here today to offer their support. If confirmed, it would be a privilege for me to return to a familiar region. 
I began my Foreign Service career in Angola and South Africa, and also spent time in Namibia, where I once drafted the Embassy's Human Rights Report. Since independence, Namibia has stood out for its strong democratic traditions, success in combating HIV-AIDS, and model wildlife conservation efforts. I would like to highlight for you three priorities that, if confirmed, I would work to advance as U.S. Ambassador. First, both the United States and Namibia seek to strengthen bilateral trade and investment. Namibia's natural resources, stable economy, and strong governance make it an attractive prospect for U.S. business. If confirmed, one of my primary goals would be to promote American business and help our trade relationship reach its full potential. Second, through the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, the United States partners closely with Namibia to provide HIV-AIDS testing, education, and treatment. With our continued help, Namibia is on track to meet UN AIDS targets and achieve epidemic control. Importantly, the Namibian government shoulders two-thirds of the costs, serving as an example as we seek to shift the burden away from U.S. assistance. Finally, if confirmed, my foremost priority will be ensuring the safety and security of American citizens, be they residing, conducting business, vacationing, or serving in the Peace Corps in Namibia. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I thank you again and look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Ms. Gonzalez. Good morning. Chairman Portman, Ranking Member Coons, and members of the committee, I am honored to be considered for the position of United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Lesotho. I am grateful for the confidence President Trump and Secretary Tillerson have shown in me by this nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee and Congress in advancing U.S. interests and supporting Lesotho in its efforts to strengthen democratic institutions and the rule of law, reverse its HIV-AIDS epidemic, and achieve sustainable, broad-based economic growth. I would like to take a moment to um, thank my parents. Uh, my father, Colonel Jose Rene Gonzalez, served in the Air Force for 26 years and was buried in 2013 with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, my mother, Estella Gonzalez, who is here with me today, um, has been a DC public school teacher for 30 years and is still teaching. And I must say, yesterday was her birthday. So happy birthday, Mom. Um, my son, Imagine Alexander, started his, his studies at the University of California, so he wasn't uh, able to join me today, but I'm proud of him, and he's, he's in my heart. And I would also like to thank my brother and sister-in-law, Jerome and Amanda Gonzalez, uh, who are here. Um, and I appreciate the support of my friends and colleagues who are here as well today. And I would like to also say thank you to uh, Ambassador Harrington, our ambassador to Lesotho and the country team, who I believe is watching us as we speak here. Um, if confirmed, I will focus on further strengthening the relationship between our two countries. My priority will be to protect and advance U.S. interests, including ensuring the safety of Americans and advancing U.S. commercial interests in Lesotho. I welcome the new government in Lesotho's efforts to lay the groundwork for a strong culture of accountability, rule of law, and much-needed political reforms. Lesotho is an AGOA success story. However, it will need to show continual progress on eligibility uh, criteria. And if confirmed, I will advocate and lend my support to these efforts. 
One of Lesotho's biggest challenges is that 25% of the adults have HIV AIDS. This is the second highest prevalence in the world. If confirmed, I will promote continued efficient use of our health assistant dollars in ensuring our partnership and efforts continue to make a real difference. We're saving lives in Lesotho. Um, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, thank you again for the opportunity to, be, to appear before you today, and I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you, Ms. Gonzalez. Mr. Evans. Chairman Portman, Ranking Member Coons, and distinguished members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, including a special thank you to our own home senior Senator Johnny Isaacson, a friend of mine of 30 years. Little did I know that we would come together at a place like this on a day when the Georgia Bulldogs were once again ranked number one in the country. <laughs> I want to thank you for the opportunity to appear before you, to speak with you, and to answer any questions you might have. It is indeed an honor and a privilege to be here in our nation's capital with you. In addition, I thank President Trump and Secretary Tillerson for the opportunity to serve our country, if I am confirmed, as the next ambassador to the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. It is an amazing place with people who understand and appreciate freedom and democracy, many, with many connections to us Americans. My wife, Linda, who couldn't be with us today, without whom I would not be here, knows well those connections. Her uncle, First Lieutenant Richard P. LaFrance, fought to free Luxembourg in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge and was later blinded in Germany just a month before VE Day. As you know, Luxembourg is a relatively small country if measured by size or population, but it is a unique mixture of citizens who are proud of their heritage but embrace their connections to so many other countries and peoples from around the world. But what Luxembourg lacks in size, it makes up for in reach. Anyone experienced in international affairs knows that Luxembourg's influence as a thought leader extends throughout the world, especially in finance and technology, and most recently in space. The world is full of challenges, and Luxembourg will undoubtedly be at the center of solving many of those challenges as a leader in the European Union, a loyal member of NATO, and a reliable friend to the United States of America. Open dialogue and communication anchored in our shared values will enable us to build even stronger bonds sufficient to, to address every challenge. This includes tackling hard questions, including the myriad of issues flowing from the United Kingdom's decision in Brexit. In short, there is much to do. I'm eager to get started. I hope you will allow me to put my skill sets to work for our country to the very best of my abilities as the next ambassador to the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Evans. Um, with Ohio State being ranked number three in the country now, uh, if the playoffs were tomorrow, we'd be playing you. So I'm trying to think of what I should ask Johnny to provide me uh, as, a, as a bet, appropriate bet. Um, I'll think about that while I'm hearing the questions uh, from my colleagues. I'm going to wait and ask my questions. We have a good turnout here today, and uh, uh, people have already had to leave and come. Everybody's busy, so I'm going to turn to Senator Coons, and, and then uh, I'll be coming back and asking questions of the nominees. And again, appreciate your willingness to serve and uh, your good testimony this morning. Senator Coons. Thank you, Senator Portman. I'll defer to my colleague, Senator Kane. Thank you. I guess 
I could defer, but instead I'll just go boldly forward. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Coons. And thanks to all of you. Congratulations to each of you for your nominations. And especially, well, really, especially to those who are career, um, I just say being on this committee and having the chance to visit abroad has been amazing. And the staffs of our embassies abroad do such good work. I recognize what Mr. Lawler said. We, we've gotten pretty good. We can always be better at thanking our military for service but we're not as good in thanking the U.S. civilians who are abroad, often in places that they get assigned to that weren't their first choice, sometimes in places where they can't bring family. Um, and we don't do as good a job as, in thanking them as we should. And I'll tell you one of the things that I'll mention to those of you who will be ambassadors um, abroad is uh, when I visit, I usually try to take first and second to our FSOs out for coffee without their ambassador um, to ask them, Tell me, you know, you've, you've achieved something really important because it's hard to get a job as a Foreign Service officer with the State Department. What will be the difference between staying and making a career out of it and leaving? And then they offer fascinating observations. I will tell you this, they never diss their boss, but they talk about things like paperwork and bureaucracy and things like that that are challenges. So especially if you're, you know, taking the post of ambassador for the first time, paying attention to the first and second tour FSO folks and their experiences is, is something that I think is good. Let me just ask a couple of questions um, to you, uh, Mr. Goldstein, about public diplomacy. I think the, the budget for international exchanges is sort of small as a percentage of the big budget challenges we deal with, but I tend to think things like international exchanges or, or training foreign militaries on the defense side, I'm on armed services too, which is also a small part of the DOD budget, these things really produce value. There's a proposal to cut this part of the portfolio of State Department pretty significantly in the President's proposed budget submission. You didn't draft up that budget. I'm not going to ask you to comment on it. But, but tell me about your view of the value of these international exchanges that are within the portfolio of your appointment, of your nomination. Thank you, Senator, for that question. Every person with whom I've spoken in this process has impressed upon me how important the exchange and cultural programs are. I share that view. My goal, if confirmed, is to enhance the programs by continuing the education that participants receive, which I think is vitally important. It's not enough just to participate in the program. We need to follow up with individuals throughout their career as they move forward. We also need to create agility so that we can ensure that we quickly develop country programs when needed, and we should enhance the programs that are doing well. In addition, Senator, I want to look closely at the American Spaces Program. Many are being moved to the embassy for security reasons, mm -hmm. and I want to do a study to determine whether that is impacting the number of people that are actually attending these, pro, uh, these particular programs. If so, we might need to work with the private sector to provide access to the right audience in the most appropriate location. Thank you for that. Ms. Johnson, I think Namibia is doing many things very, very well. One of the areas where I think as I look at uh, their history, there's some challenges to do better in the area of human trafficking, and they're a tier two nation right now in the, in the tip. Um, what are some of the kinds of things that you think you might be able to do in your capacity as ambassador to, to work with them and help them uh, get even better at dealing with trafficking issues? Thank you very much for that question, Senator. In the Bahamas, where I'm serving currently, um, Bahamas was tier two three years ago. Mm -hmm. We helped take them to tier one. Mm -hmm. They're the first tier one country in the Caribbean. <laughs> the way we did that, it was a partnership through a very strong commitment on the part of the government, a political will, and close and continued engagement with the United States. 
So taking that track record and looking what some of the issues are in Namibia, I believe that if confirmed, I could help them make progress. I think the political will is there. Uh, some of the issues, some of the areas where they need to strengthen, uh, more resources for victim shelters. They need to um, complete comprehensive legislation and pass it and implement it, as well as their national action plan. Um, raising awareness throughout the country, not just in the capital, but in the rural areas uh, where you have child labor, for example, um, and trafficking. Um, I think those are the principal areas. They also didn't have any convictions last year, so we need to strengthen the, the justice system component. But I think in all of those areas, um, there are areas where we, we can make progress with continued engagement and commitment. Great. If you would, Mr. Chair, if I could ask one more question, Mr. Lawler. We have instances over time, right now we're dealing with a tough one with Russia, also Cuba. During the Obama administration, we dealt with one with India, where challenges lead to the recalling of personnel, and then there's a little bit of a, you know, retaliation. If you recall ours, you will recall yours. Talk a little bit about the diplomatic skills that you already have that you would bring to the table. Sometimes these are unavoidable. If a country does something that's wrong, there's going to be a consequence. Sometimes we almost, I think, stumble into them a little bit by accident. Talk a little bit about how you would approach your position to try to minimize misunderstandings of this kind. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, the Office of the Chief of Protocol is responsible for um, you know, the, dealing directly with the Chiefs of Mission and the Deputy Chiefs of Missions for the uh, embassies in, in Washington. Um, we're, we're the liaison for the dipl diplomatic missions. If there are any problems brought to our attention, we deal with those. Obviously, we follow the Vienna Convention, ensuring that our diplomats abroad are, are given the same rights as theirs, so we don't discount any uh, rule breakers or anything like that, but we'll deal with those as they come up. Um, and if, if we have any issues, we'll go back and obviously ensure that we either ask if, if there's problems, we'll, we'll go back to the, the host nation and ask for the immunity to be withdrawn. If not, we'll ask for the uh, diplomat to depart the country. Senator Isaacson. Thank you much, very much, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of you, and congratulations on your appointment. I want to focus on our two uh, ambassador nominees for Africa for just a second, if I can. Senator Coons and I were both on the Africa Subcommittee together and travel quite frequently to Africa over a couple of years, working, first of all, on the biggest product in Georgia was chickens, and it's the biggest product in Delaware is chickens. And we brought down the door, the, the lock on the door in South Africa, and now there are 19,000 metric tons of Georgia and Delaware chicken going into South Africa every year. And that was in large measure because of what we did on AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act. Are you all familiar with that, and what, do you have any ideas about what you want to do in terms of promoting engagement with that? Start with Ms. Gonzalez. Thank you for that question, uh, Senator. Um, Lesotho has been an AGOA success story. Um, they, under this program, there have been 40,000 uh, people who have been employed, most of them women. Uh, I've read this has had a ripple effect on um, 100,000 family members as well as downstream businesses. Um, I think that uh, Lesotho needs to continue um, its efforts to address rule of law and bring about good governance so that it will continue to be eligible under AGOA. And uh, there are opportunities for diversification. In addition to that, there are opportunities for U.S. businesses um, in the renew uh, renewable energy, agriculture, water. Um, as you know, uh, Lesotho is surrounded by South Africa. There are 600 U.S. companies operating there um, who could possibly expand uh, businesses into Lesotho. 
And um, so if confirmed, I would work hard to identify business opportunities for U.S. companies uh, to ensure that they're treated fairly uh, and to make sure that the playing field is level, Senator. Ms. Johnson. Uh, thank you, Senator. AGOA for Namibia, eligibility is not an issue, but um, use of the program is. Uh, Namibia has not taken full advantage of the ben benefits under AGOA. Um, in large part, I would say it's, it's a factor of the type of economy you have in Namibia. It's a very small market. Um, AGOA is a trade, not aid program, and it's really private sector driven. So companies are going to make business decisions, and they have to weigh things like the high cost of transportation, of electricity, in deciding what type of, of business makes sense in Namibia. Um, uh, there's been a lot of success in other countries, as my colleague said, in the textile industry. Uh, what makes more sense probably for Namibia is agribusiness. And in fact, just last year, U.S. Department of Agriculture certified beef products from Namibia as the first African beef products to be eligible for export to the United States. So those would be eligible for AGOA benefits. So if, if confirmed, I will look to promote greater use of the AGOA program. I appreciate both of your really knowledge of that issue because that's an important program for the United States and important for Africa, too. I've, I've said in many a hearing that Africa is the continent of the 21st century for the United States of America. There are more mouths to feed, more opportunity, more votes in the UN and Africa than anywhere else in the world right now. And the better our friendships are, the better economic ties we have, the better off we're going to be. Ms. Johnson, I want to commend you on the next to last paragraph of your printed remarks where you said, uh, finally, if confirmed, my foremost priority will be ensuring the safety and security of American citizens in Namibia, be they living there, conducting business there, traveling there, or serving in the Peace Corps. And for Senator Coons and I, the serving in the Peace Corps part is very important because we went together to Benin because of the loss of a Peace Corps volunteer who had been murdered there. And the Kate Pusey Peace Corps Volunteers Security Act is now part of the law in the United States because of that trip that we made and because of what we tried to do to improve security for Peace Corps volunteers overseas. And Africa is the home base for the Peace Corps in terms of numbers. There are a tremendous amount of Americans there volunteering their time and helping our country a lot. So I appreciate your voluntary commitment to that in your statement, and I hope both of you will support the Peace Corps whenever they come and visit. And we'll, Senator Coons and I will try and come visit you as soon as we can. Good luck to both of you. Or to all five of you, I'm sorry. They want to leave you out, Randy. <laughs> Senator Coons, I'm going to allow you to determine your word. Good. Um, well, I'd like to follow up on the questioning uh, by my colleague, Senator Isaacson, if I might. Um, first, just on um, an issue that was raised uh, by Senator Kane uh, to uh, Mr. Goldstein. Um, on international exchanges, um, I, I, too, am concerned that there's a, a proposed 50% cut in a number of these programs. And one that we've seen have a significant positive impact across the continent of Africa is the Young African Leaders Initiative, so-called YALI, or the Mandela Fellows. Uh, it brought in the last year a 1,000 young Africans to the United States, and I've hosted a fellow in my office now several years as an intern. They spread across our country and go to 20 different colleges and universities uh, for a terrific six-week program of training and engagement with the United States, and then gather back here in Washington and return home. And on a visit to Liberia at the height of the Ebola crisis, I had a chance to meet our former Yali fellows uh, convened by the ambassador and hear what they were doing in the face of this challenge and to be inspired by how many of them um, had um, engaged themselves in uh, volunteer activity, either launching nonprofits or 
serving as volunteers in the Liberian response to Ebola. Is this a program you're at all familiar with, Mr. Goldstein? Do you have any sense of its value or impact? Thank you, Senator, for that question. It is a program that I'm familiar with, and I hope, if I'm lucky enough to be confirmed for this role, to have the opportunity to meet many of the people that you just described. I will commit to looking very closely at this to see what we can do to possibly enhance this program. Ms. Gonzalez, Ms. Johnson, is this something you've had any exposure to, have heard of, any sense of what the potential is of the ALI program in the countries to which you may well be soon serving as ambassador? Thank you, Senator. Um, I am familiar with YALI. I think it is an enormously successful program. Um, there are over 3,000 um, young African leaders in Lesotho who participate in the network, over 100 uh, alumni. Um, I think that uh, the value that they bring by coming here and learning about us and then going back and taking what they've seen and implementing it in, 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 in Lesotho is phenomenal. And I think that they're excited, they're great partners, they serve as local voices and conduits, amplifying our programs and our values and priorities. And if I were confirmed, I would certainly continue to um, engage and, and support YALI. Um, and in addition to that, we have an American corner at the university uh, in Lesotho, and my understanding is that it's enormously popular, and uh, people are, are, are very excited about our public diplomacy programs. Ms. Johnson. Thank you, Senator. I'm a big supporter of YALI. In Namibia, we have 59 alumni from the Mandela Fellows Program. And what I understand from the embassy is they're a real force multiplier for us. They are very accomplished in their respective fields, be it public sector management, um, non-governmental civil society, or, or entrepreneurship. And when they take what they've learned here and bring it back to Namibia, they're going to be the movers and shakers going forward. And it's really very important for the United States to partner with them and advance our, our shared interests. Um, and we, we really rely on that alumni network quite strongly. I'm very excited about engaging them. Thank you. Let, let me ask, I'll ask two quick following questions about uh, your respective nations, and I'll have additional questions in the next round, if I might. Um, I've been to Namibia. <clears throat> A number of us went there last uh, February, I believe. And very impressive country, making great progress in HIV-AIDS, terrific partner in wildlife trafficking. <clears throat> could stand to make progress on their human trafficking standard. I was concerned by some reports about uh, relations between their military and North Korea. Can you speak to that a little bit and help me understand how we might make progress, because I think it's emblematic of the challenge we face in a dozen countries around the world in making progress in uh, restraining the reach of North Korea's military? Uh, thank you, Senator. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, North Korea is a global menace, and all states have a responsibility to abide by UN Security Council resolutions and help cut off funding to the North Korean regime. I would say that Namibia is doing its part. Namibia does have a long-standing relationship with North Korea. It dates back to the liberation struggle prior to 1990. 
but countries at this stage are really forced to choose. You can either have a relationship with North Korea or you can abide by the UN Security Council resolutions. And Namibia's made its choice. Namibia came into being under a UN mandate. They have great respect for, for the UN and UN Security Council. So what you have seen is not military cooperation with Namibia, but rather construction activities that have been carried out by state-owned uh, firms, um, including building the Ministry of Defense, um, defense ministry buildings on other bases, uh, as, well as, as well as statues. Now, North Korea, well, Namibia has taken some very important steps in the last two years. In 2015, they expelled the remaining North Korean diplomats from, from Windhoek. In June of 2016, they stated that they would end their commercial relationship with North Korea. And since that time, they have been implementing that commitment and have affirmed that they have ended contracts with North Korea and, most recently, that the last North Korean workers have departed Namibia. Okay. Uh, so I think Namibia has taken great strides to distance itself from North Korea and abide by the UN Security Council resolutions. And if confirmed, I would keep that issue very front burner on the agenda and encourage Namibia to continue to be very transparent with the UN Security Council on the matter. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. I'll have additional. Hey, let me just interject quickly here um, with regard to Korea, because I was um, concerned about that as well. North Korea works in a number of different ways, and one is through some of their companies. The Korea Mining Development Trading Corporation is one, and my understanding is that there continues to be uh, some relationship there, perhaps through a front group in Namibia, and so I understand you're uh, saying, Ms. Johnson, there's been progress made and commitments made, but I, I would hope that you would focus on this issue and perhaps have Namibia be <clears throat> one of those countries that becomes a model uh, already for Korean workers. It sounds like North Korean workers having been sent home because those remittances are you know, part of how North Korea continues to be able to survive economically and repress its own people and develop its nuclear weapons and missile technology program. So I would just hope that that specific issue, as I understand it, that continues to be a problem and that will be a, be a focus of yours. Uh, yes, Senator, it definitely will be a focus. And I think, you know, we also have to look at, at banks and ensure that financial flows are no longer going to North Korea. But it is my understanding that even um, front companies that have been designated by the UN, that relationships in Namibia have ended with those companies. Mm -hmm. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to all of you on your nominations, and I look forward to working with you once confirmed um, for in the interest of the country. I, I want to begin with you, Mr. Goldstein, and thank you for taking time to meet with me yesterday. One of the things that we discussed is the whole disinformation um, issue that is facing this country. The Italian government recently announced a program with private sector partners to help build digital resilience among students to help them better identify disinformation. Can you talk about whether you think a similar kind of initiative would help in the United States to address this problem? Thank you, Senator, for that question, and I did enjoy meeting with you yesterday. I do believe such a program would help in the United States, but I believe we have to do more. There is no question that this disinformation campaign has been of concern to many. We need to work with the technology companies, which I believe currently is at an inflection point, to determine how we can interdict and figure out how to stop this from occurring. We also have to recognize, Senator, that social media accounts are just as important as financial accounts, 
and we have to take that seriously. We need to figure out how to disrupt and choke off the communications flows. But in addition to that, we need to work as we're doing at the State, as the State Department is doing with Radio Free Europe, with Radio Liberty, with Current Time, with the Middle East Network, and others to get our message out there. It's not just a defensive posture that we should take. We also need to be offensive, as you noted they're doing in Italy in that particular program. Well, thank you. I appreciate that and totally agree that we need, do need to be not just defensive, but um, look at outreach that we can do to address this problem. Um, as you know, one of the um, aspects of the Global Engagement Center, which is part of your portfolio, is a fund um, to bolster outside non-governmental groups. And will you pledge that after your confirmation, if you're confirmed, that you will work with Congress to make sure that that fund is adequately resourced and that the funds go toward organizations and initiatives that can help build that kind of resilience that we're talking about? Absolutely, Senator. While I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, yesterday's terrorist attack in New York occurred very close to where I live. So I've seen firsthand, and I had a friend who actually watched that occur yesterday. We have got to put extreme importance on the Global Engagement Center. We need to choke off the communications flow that extremists use to build their networks. And we also need to figure out a way to stop the recruitment of people whose primary goal is to do harm to our citizens and the citizens of our allies. Well, thank you very much. And I know I speak for the whole committee in saying that um, we certainly offer our condolences to you and to everyone in New York on what they've suffered. I just wanted, I'm not going to ask you a question because I know you've addressed this, but I just wanted to weigh in given our discussion yesterday that I share the concerns that everybody has expressed about the importance of our educational and cultural exchanges, and uh, I hope you will continue a robust program and um, that you will look at ways in which you can make sure the resources are there to support those programs. Um, I certainly don't support uh, the administration's proposal to get rid of many of those because I think they're so important as we look at other areas in which we can um, build relationships ongoing. You talked about Africa as one of those, and I certainly think that's an indication of how important those exchange programs are. I, I want to ask both you and Mr. Lawler this question because we know that reorganization is going on within the State Department, and we've heard testimony before this committee about the reorganization, but so far there's been very little information shared about exactly um, what's being done within the State Department and what the outcome of that might be. So would you both agree that Senate-confirmed State Department officials should work closely with this committee on plans to reorganize the department? Mr. Lawler. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, that's quite important, and yes, I would agree to that. Mr. Goldstein. Yes, Senator. And do you pledge to work with this committee and be responsive to any requests that we have pertaining to matters relevant to your areas of responsibility if you're confirmed, Mr. Lawler? Yes, ma'am. Mr. Goldstein. Yes, Senator. I look forward to meeting with you as frequently as you would like. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, I'd like to follow up, if I could, on Senator Shaheen's questions with regard to 
disinformation. In your written remarks, uh, Mr. Goldstein, you talk a little about the Global Engagement Center and focus on the important role it has in fighting back against Islamic extremism and providing a counter-narrative. Um, in the wake of what happened in New York yesterday, that tragedy, once again, uh, we realize that people are being radicalized, even in this country, uh, often online, and um, often through a, a concerted effort to reach those most vulnerable to that information. And um, so we need to redouble our efforts. And I, and I appreciate your commitment to that. And you mentioned it again in your, in your testimony. The, the radicalization from Islamic extremism is one part of the Global Engagement Center, but actually there's a, another part of it now. Uh, as you may be aware, Senator Murphy, who was here earlier, and I uh, drafted legislation that essentially rewrote the Global Engagement Center's authorities and mandated it to include state-sponsored propaganda in addition to the counter-extremist messaging. So the issue of disinformation, propaganda that we're facing, not just from Russia, uh, but also other countries, China, Iran, and others, um, countries that make an aggressive use of propaganda and disinformation, uh, comes at the expense of us and often our allies. And I do believe they're trying to destabilize uh, democratic countries, not just ours, but around the world. And um, I, I think this is one where we're going to really need your help. From uh, the cyber attacks we've seen, uh, to the social media bots, to the internet troll farms we now know more about, to state-sponsored media outlets, including here in Washington, D.C. Uh, they create sophisticated information campaigns, essentially to sort of weaponize the modern information environment. And by the way, this didn't start with the 2016 election, and it won't end there unless we are more aggressive in, in responding to it. So I, I, I would ask today that you comment on that as Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. You're going to play a key role in this. First, uh, do you agree that countering this foreign disinformation and propaganda is a national security priority? Yes, sir, I do agree. Second, do you share Secretary Tillerson's uh, public comments that support the Global Engagement Center and its mission to be able to counter this disinformation, both from extremist groups like ISIS, but also uh, nation states, as required in the DOD Authorization Act last year? Absolutely, Senator. Uh, one of the issues we've had with the GEC is to get funding in there and to get the right people there. And uh, you mentioned Radio Free Europe earlier, and it's an important operation, uh, so are others, but frankly for me, uh, the focus should be more on the online communication, social media, and having the expertise to do that. Uh, it requires some funds, both to attract the right people and to have the right technology. Um, I was pleased to see that Secretary Torreson approved the GEC strategic plan, and he released some funds to execute it. They also submitted a request to DOD for $40 million that we had provided for here in Congress to support the uh, Global Engagement Center's efforts. Um, we're still waiting, as I understand, for the final transfer of those funds, which are critical to the GEC. Uh, I'd appreciate your commitment today, if you're willing to make it, that you will be persistent in pursuing that funding from DOD to state to be able to ensure that the Global Engagement Center has the resources it needs. Yes, sir, Senator, I will be persistent in pursuing that funding. I do believe we have to be very aggressive in our response. I also think we must speak to people where they listen. The, the world is getting younger. 50% of people in Africa are under 25 years old, from what I've recently been told. 
In Asia, the average, uh, the, the, uh, the average age is somewhere under 30. I saw a story recently that said even in New York, I mean, even in the United States, I apologize, that 26 is the number one age. There are more people 26 than any other age. In addition, ISIS has very persuasive videos online that are directed to people who are disgruntled. We have got to make this a priority, and you have my commitment and the commitment of the people within the State Department that we will do so. Will you commit today to sharing information and working closely with members of this committee to ensure that you do have the tools and resources to be able to carry out this critical mission we've talked about? Yes, sir, I will. Right. I think that's a really important part of uh, your job, and uh, I appreciate you taking it seriously and reporting back to us on whether you think it's uh, moving forward, both with regard to the funding and resources and also the, uh, the personnel. Uh, with that, I'll turn to my colleague, Senator Coons. Thank you, Senator Portman. Uh, let me turn to Mr. Evans and Mr. Lawler, if I might. Uh, Mr. Evans, I'm from the state of Delaware. Uh, we also have a strong financial services community. Uh, as we were discussing here before, uh, one of our challenges globally in uh, pursuing uh, terrorism, um, those who might be our opponents, such as North Korea, is bank transparency and better understanding um, what is moving in terms of capital flows around the world. Um, if confirmed as the ambassador to Luxembourg, what would you be doing to help make sure that we and um, our law enforcement and intelligence communities have as strong and appropriate a relationship as possible with Luxembourg's fairly vigorous uh, financial services sector? Senator Coons, thank you for that question. It's, it's a critically important question because uh, Prime Minister Patel started the process of increasing the transparency uh, in the banking process in Luxembourg. And I would work with him and with anyone who would work with us uh, to try to continue that momentum toward more and more transparency. As, as you don't, no doubt know, having watched many of your other hearings, uh, sanctions have no teeth if we can't locate the money, if we can't find the accounts. And so our ability to do that will depend greatly on the ability to get countries like Luxembourg to uh, continue to improve their transparency in terms of banking transactions. Well, I think our, our folks in OFAC and the, the Department of Treasury do an excellent job, but we need our allies, in particular some of our European allies, to be uh, more engaged and more forthcoming. Um, a, a colleague uh, raised with me a concern that I'm going to ask you about. Um, you served on the Georgia State Election Board uh, from 2003 to 2011, and in 06, the state passed a voter ID law that required photo ID. Uh, and as I understand it, two courts, both state and federal, uh, enjoined that law, um, finding it unconstitutional. Um, but the state election board sent out information to voters saying they might be implying that they were required to have voto ID. Um, and then further steps were taken to provide remedial information to voters. And it seems to me from the timeline, you were probably centrally involved in this. Help me understand your role in this, how this played out. It's a concern, I know, for a number of my colleagues. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for letting me have the opportunity to address it. I'd rather address it up front. Um, and when the issue first came up, I went back to try to reconstruct what happened 11 years ago. Candidly, there were uh, a lot of things going on at that particular time. So here's what, here's what I know. In 2006, the Georgia legislature passed, and Governor, then Governor Sonny Perdue, now Secretary Perdue, uh, signed into law a second attempt at a voter identification law. Now, that law was upheld by all of the appellate courts and has, is in, still in effect today. 
Once the United States Department of Justice cleared Georgia's new photo ID law, the state began to issue free identification cards to anyone that wanted or needed one. In addition to address concerns raised in these various judicial proceedings, the state initiated an education effort regarding how to get a free ID card. In early September 2006, the state election board unanimously voted with bipartisan support, including the, Democratic, the designee of the Democratic Party of Georgia and the Democratic Secretary of State to approve a mailing explaining how to get a free photo ID to approximately 300,000 Georgians who had been identified as potentially not having an ID. While those letters were in the mailing process, opponents went to court and challenged the photo ID law and sought and obtained an, objection, uh, an injunction. Although many of the letters had already gone out, some of the letters were received after the court's ruling. The state then sent a second letter making clear that photo IDs would not be required to vote in the election. As for my part, as immediately upon learning of the injunction, I asked for a board meeting, and although I knew the state was going to appeal, I insisted that the photo ID not be applied to that election because if, if they sought a stay of the injunction and it was granted, you would be flip-flopping back and forth within 60 days of the election, and I felt very strongly that would create too much confusion. You can, when you look back, you'll see a number of press reports about whether or not I was quote unquote going soft. Uh, but the fact of the matter was is that uh, at that moment, the, the appropriate course of action was to let the state appeal, but not apply it in that election cycle until all of the dust had settled in the various judicial proceedings. Well, thank you, Mr. Evans. There's, in the background I got on this, there's a complex series of filings, court proceedings, injunctions, letters, injunctions, letters, and it's, it's unclear to me exactly how this all played out, but um, you know, photo ID um, voting practices are of uh, sort of pressing concern uh, to many of us, particularly um, if part of the role of an ambassador is to represent the proper functioning of a democracy. Um, I, I also just want to add to previous conversation with Mr. Goldstein in a in a visit to Eastern Europe, um, I think a year ago, August, um, to Estonia, to Ukraine, and to the Czech Republic, where Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty are headquartered, um, I was, it was strongly impressed on me just how important these programs are, just how important the programming and the outreach and the education is, and um, I urge you to work on that. I think Senator Portman uh, made an important point about the combination of traditional media like radio and uh, digital media and are continuing to make sure that we're doing the best we can and being fairly cutting edge. Ms. Gonzalez, if I might just quickly, um, Lesotho has benefited more from a go than almost any African country, um, yet they've got some significant unresolved human rights challenges and governance and security sector uh, challenges. How do you see weighing those two going forward and do you think there should be consequences for Lesotho in terms of their AGOA eligibility if they don't continue to make progress in human rights and in security sector reforms? Thank you for that question, Senator Coons. Um, I think the United States, we have been very engaged with the government of Lesotho uh, concerning a continued AGOA eligibility. Uh, as you noted, human rights is a problem in Lesotho. There's impunity. Um, there's uh, an and uh, there have been problematic soldiers. Um, and so the security sector needs reform. Uh, specifically, there needs to be absolute control um, 
civilian control of the military. I think the United States has been very effective in engaging the government of Lesotho uh, with respect to continued AGOA eligibility, as well as consideration of a second MCC compact. We had our first MCC compact from 2008 to 2013. Um, Lesotho was being considered for planning for a second MCC compact. Um, and then that was put on hold. And we've made it very clear that for Lesotho to be eligible for a second MCC compact, um, it needs to have security sector constitutional and parliamentary reforms. And in addition to that, it needs to show that it will be able to sustain um, its first MCC compact. So I think that we've been very effective in leveraging um, our programs and, and pushing for democratic institutions and rule of law. And if I were confirmed, I would continue uh, that message. Thank you. I, I believe in the power of uh, MCC and in particular the desire of many countries to have a shot at a second compact. I've seen it work uh, to motivate countries to make changes. So. I look forward to hearing about your progress on that regard. If I might, with the indulgence of the chair. Sure. Um, Mr. Lawler, just help me understand what your um, admirable long service for the United States Navy and Na National Security Council will do to provide you with the skills and preparation necessary uh, for a, a role that may at times be delicate and difficult, involves a lot of juggling and managing um, sometimes a very wide and disparate uh, community here. Um, thank you, Senator, for the question. That's a, a very important. Um, over my career, I mean, almost 30 years now, I've been working within the government, work, you know, support to uh, senior, most senior members of the military and our government. Um, it, most importantly, just working backwards at the last, uh, during this administration since January, um, working with the president's schedule um, with foreign leaders. Um, I, uh, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm tempted to ask questions about the upcoming Asia trip, but I'm not. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, no. it, it's, you know, it's hard to articulate going back really almost 30 years of qualifications. This protocol has been my, um, my job, um, kind of my bread and butter. Five years prior to this, joining the administration, uh, National Security Council in January, I did protocol at the uh, U.S. Cyber Command foreign engagements once or twice a week. I have lots of experience. I've lived abroad for six years, uh, traveled the world, very few places I haven't been. Um, it, and one of the things with protocol is obviously to do no harm. Um, going into this, one of my goals right off the bat is to just ensure that, put, put a good face and set the stage for diplomacy for the president. Thank you, Mr. Lawler. Let me um, thank you, if I might, uh, Grace um, and Connor, who I know is not here, but anyway, thank you. Um, and uh, to Ms. Johnson, uh, to your parents and brother, uh, to Mr. Evans, uh, to Linda, who I know is not with here, but here is, is supporting you, um, to Estella. Uh, happy birthday, and uh, thank you for 30 years of teaching, uh, and to your late father for his uh, dedication and service to our nation. Uh, and uh, Mr. Goldstein, wonderful to have Bill with us, uh, to, to have your husband present and the support of your family. Uh, thank you to all five of our nominees today. I really appreciate your testimony. Senator. Thank you. Senator Sheehan. Um, I wanted to pick up Mr. Evans on the comments that Senator Coons made about voting because I was in Armenia in 2003 
as part of an observer mission to their parliamentary elections. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I noticed some improprieties in the voting. And when I raised that with the moderator at the polling place, what his response to me was, well, you have no reason to raise this with us because you couldn't get your voting right in Florida in the 2000 presidential election. So I, I think it is very important that we model good democratic procedures in our voting, that we um, denounce voter suppression efforts, and that we um, show the rest of the world a good model for voting. So I would just echo his comments about how important that is. I do want to ask you about your views on both NATO and the EU, because having been in Europe a number of times since the new administration began, the, there is great consternation in parts of Europe about what our views continue to be on the transatlantic relationship, on the importance of NATO, on the EU, and how important it is to that transatlantic relationship. So can you tell me what your views are on the EU and NATO? Well, let me take them, if I can, one at a time. I don't think NATO has ever been more important in the history of NATO. To be candid, I, mean, uh, I think Russia poses a greater threat today than it has at any time, probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, its techniques and methods are much more aggressive, much more cyber-oriented, much more technologically oriented, but it means that it's all the more important that NATO nations all come together and have a united defense because if there's a crack, that's where they penetrate. And so uh, as far as NATO goes, and as you know, uh, Luxembourg is a, is a value member of NATO. Now, in fairness, we have to work a little bit on their contribution. I mean, they don't meet the Wales commitment of 2%. They're down at 0.48 or 0.46% with a commitment to go to 0.6% by 2024. But I've made a pretty decent living out of getting more money out of people than they wanted to give. So I'm hoping that I can put those skill sets to work uh, to get uh, not only Luxembourg, but other countries up to their commitment and the Wales, and the Wales commitment. Um, as far as the European Union, I think it's right now in a state of transformation as far as what we can tell. Uh, our firm has uh, 25 offices in 17 European nations. Uh, we come together once a year and we can get firsthand reports on what's happening in the EU. Suddenly Brexit, uh, obviously Brexit was a major uh, blow or impact to uh, the EU. Uh, there are other countries that are, have some movement the, uh, about whether or not the EU is sustainable long-term. But I think as a valued trading partner, it's, it, it's enormously beneficial to the United States. It's much easier to have a bilateral treaty with the EU as a single unit than it is to have bilateral agreements with each of the different Europe for, European nations in the EU. Uh, but at the end of the day, in fairness, I think uh, the member nations of the EU are going to have to decide their future. I think they're grappling with some serious questions even now as they adapt, uh, you know, adapt to Great Britain's departure. Uh, I think those questions will take about two. It, it appears to me most uh, experts agree it'll take about two to three years before we see those sorted out. Well, Brexit certainly seems to be creating as many problems for Britain as it does for the EU at this point. Um, but... 
Given what you said and the fragility of the EU and the challenges that they're facing, how important is it for us to reaffirm our commitment to the importance of the security of Europe and the EU? Absolutely critically important because it makes them vulnerable. Um, our enemies take advantage when we're divided. Uh, that is the most vulnerable point that we have. And so unity is most important whenever you're facing such aggressive uh, adversaries, uh, uh, overt aggression, making no secret of their plans. Uh, that's the moment where we have to come together. Because if we don't, we just render ourselves, ourselves vulnerable to an enemy who is intent on defeating us. Thank you. Ms. Johnson, um, Senator Coons and Ms. Gonzalez just talked about the Millennium Challenge Corporation and how important it has been. It concluded in Namibia in 2014. Can you talk about some of the successes that resulted in Namibia from its participation in MCC? Uh, thank you, Senator, and, and certainly. Um, the compact was very successful in Namibia. In fact, so successful they worked themselves out of a job and were not eligible for a second compact because they reached upper middle income status. Uh, there were a lot of sex successes in the areas of tourism, infrastructure, and agriculture. Um, but Namibia does still face economic challenges. They have very high unemployment rate, 34%, probably 50% for people under 35. And you've got a population that's very young, 59% are, 57% are under the age of 25. Um, huge income disparity. Um, my understanding is that the government of Namibia is working very hard on some of those problems and that they're really trying to foster inclusive growth, um, looking at how to incentivize manufacturing, entrepreneurship, um, improve the business climate further to attract trade and investment. So while it's true that the international assistance to Namibia is going down, it's now on, on the government of Namibia's responsibility to, to continue their, their economic growth. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Um, so uh, first, I appreciate the testimony today, and all of you have had a chance to answer questions. Uh, Mr. Lawler was left out earlier, and I'm glad that Senator Coons asked him a little bit about his background and what he's going to do. Uh, I will say, Mr. Lawler, you get high marks from the professional career folks I've talked to at NSC and at the White House, but also the political people for your professionalism and your integrity. Um, you're going to need it. This is a really important job. And one aspect of your job that we have not talked about today, I'd like your comments on, is how you deal with the diplomatic missions here in this country. And my understanding is that, having known some of your predecessors, that that's an important part of your job, is to uh, be mindful of the other diplomatic missions. And uh, we've had some huge issues just in the last year, um, expelling Cuban diplomats most recently, uh, expelling Russian diplomats. Um, uh, some of these diplomats, you know, we believe were engaged in inappropriate activities. Some of it was in response, as I understand it, to, you know, broader uh, geopolitical problems. But my question to you would be, um, when tensions with the United States and these foreign countries develop and prompt us to do these expulsions or close diplomatic facilities, uh, what role does your office have in that, and um, how do you feel about that? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, that's obviously a very important issue, not just for the State Department, for the nation, <clears throat> but also for the nation. 
Um, again, our, our, if confirmed, my main role in, in this is to be the, the president's liaison with the diplomatic corps in Washington, D.C. So I'll deal directly with the chiefs of mission, the deputy chiefs of mission, uh, with any issues that they have that arise or any allegations that arise. Um, but really, I'd like to just put maybe a little bit of a pot of positive spin on this question. Um, I very much look forward to this aspect of the job, um, dealing with the president and, and, and accompanying him and introducing him is a, is a great, great, uh, great honor. But another big, big, large portion of this job is actually meeting with these ambassadors as they arrive, as they get credentialed, taking them to the White House and, ha and building relationships with them. Um, there's programs right now in the State Department. Um, one of them is Experience America, which is a when I first read about it, I was a little suspicious um, at, at the cost, but it's actually, it's a wonderful, wonderful program where we take the diplomatic corps in Washington, spread them out to the United States, get them out of the Washington DC bubble, meet constituents um, and, and build exchanges. Um, so I think to answer your question, really it's, it's the relationship building on the front end and meeting with all of these ambassadors and building relationships. So when there are trouble, they can be candid We'll have a better relationship. Well, again, uh, thank you for your willingness to take on this new role, and I think it, it's a, uh, a logical evolution given your background in protocol and your 30-year career in the U.S. Navy. Um, Ms. Johnson, Namibia. Um, Senator McCain asked you about human trafficking and how to get Namibia up to a Tier 1 country, and um, it's an issue that I have strong interest in, but more importantly, so does this entire Senate and this, and this committee, and so we want to encourage you to work with them, again, to provide a, more of a model. The MCC program and the contract, uh, I think, was effective, but we still haven't made the progress we need to make on human trafficking. But on wildlife trafficking, we also have an issue in, in Namibia, and it's not only in Namibia. It's um, unfortunately pervasive in many countries in Africa, and it not only has devastating impacts on wildlife and tourism, ecotourism in particular, but also uh, helps to fund terrorist activities. And that link has been uh, confirmed um, more probably in the last decade than prior to that, and it, it continues to be a, a problem. So I guess my, my question is, um, do you have a commitment to this conservation program that Namibia has attempted to uh, implement there is legislation that Senator Coons actually drafted. He's the author of the End Wildlife Trafficking Act. Um, I was one of his co-sponsors, and it encourages you to provide support, particularly with community conservation efforts. So can you talk a little about that? Uh, Senator Isaacson's uh, question about economic development um, was focused on a go, and you talked about the importance of Beef exports, and that is important, but I would assume, and you tell us, that ecotourism is even a bigger part of the economy in Namibia, and that that wildlife conservation is key to keeping that ecotourism healthy. Uh, thank you, Senator. I actually have a very strong commitment to conservation and environmental protection coming from Washington State. It's very close to my heart. Um, the uh, Namibians actually brag about having enshrined environmental protection in their constitution. And they have been a model for sub-Saharan Africa in their communal conservancies. So they, they have over 80 of them now. And that's a strong partnership between the government of Namibia, 
local communities, NGOs, and, and the U.S. government that actually provides some income for local communities from um, ecotourism and, and sport hunting. Uh, but Namibia does still have challenges. There was a spike in rhino poaching last year. Uh, Two-thirds of the world's black rhinos are located in Namibia. I think there were 60 poached last year. It's, it's down to 27 so far this year. They also have trouble with illicit uh, wildlife trafficking networks, which are becoming increasingly sophisticated, as, as you alluded to. So that's why we do continue to put some resources into grants with international NGOs, where we're working with the Namibian government on their draft national strategy to combat wildlife trafficking, and also providing some training and technical assistance for Ministry of Environment and Tourism park wardens and uh, for customs officials. And we're also going to be working with them on the judicial side to ensure successful prosecutions. I think one of the really good signs is a single animal is poached in Namibia and it's front page news. The Namibians know how important it is for them to protect this resource. Um, so I think, you know, I definitely commit to you that if confirmed, I will continue to implement the intent of the End Wildlife Trafficking Act, which has really helped us to strengthen our international partnerships and, and cooperation with countries to combat wildlife trafficking and poaching. Well, I thank you for that answer, and I appreciate your commitment. Let me ask you about a specific program. Uh, as you know, Namibia is engaged in a regional effort as well with other countries, Botswana, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and some conservation uh, organizations to conserve the Okavango River Delta, which is such a critical habitat for endangered species and apparently an amazingly beautiful area uh, and critical to ecotourism in the region. We've now invested as the U.S. government, as I understand it, $40 million uh, to help conserve that delta through watershed management programs and resource management programs. Um, I assume you're aware of that program, and if confirmed, will you commit to working uh, with Namibia to engage deeply in this uh, Okavango River Basin project? Um, absolutely, Senator. I actually had the fortune to visit the Okavanga Delta when I served in, in South Africa. It is, it is a beautiful area, and you have my full commitment to that effort. Great. Well, again, thank you all for being here. Um, we appreciate all five of you being willing to serve. Uh, a few of you have done this for a long time uh, in, the, in your career in the Foreign Service and in the military, um, and a couple of you are coming out of the private sector. Uh, I had the opportunity at one point to serve as U.S. Trade Representative, and People ask me, you know, what was it like? I said, just an amazing honor to represent our great country around the world. And that's what each of you will be doing in your own ways. And uh, we will have differences uh, here in this committee on policy issues, uh, but we have no differences in terms of thanking you for your willingness to serve. And once you're confirmed, I believe you will be, uh, based on the answers you gave today, uh, we want to be able to support you and, and your colleagues to best represent uh, the United States of America throughout the world. Thank you. This hearing is now adjourned.